Hi, this is Bethany Aguad, and I play Belinda Walsingham in Serviceable Plots, and I'm one of the hosts of Rules is Written. Thank you for joining us for our fourth mailbag episode. Today, we're going to be answering questions from friends and listeners on our Discord server, on Twitter, and our patrons on Patreon. I especially want to thank our patrons, Mosiru, Jeremy Kleinhans, and Matt Fry for their questions we're going to be answering today. Just to give you guys a bit of news, we are actually recording the end of Arc 1 for both Serviceable Plots and Rumble Squad. It'll be a few months before those episodes come out. We are really excited for you guys to see how everything culminates. Also, we want to thank you all because we are now at 70,000 downloads, which is a huge milestone for us. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast and enjoy what we create. Just a couple of notes. We might be giving some spoilers for the released episodes of Serviceable Plots and Rumble Squad, which would be Serviceable Plots up to episode 30 and Rumble Squad up to episode 26. If you want to catch up on all those episodes, at the end of this, we'll be having a recap of Serviceable Plots episodes 21 through 30 and Rumble Squad episodes 21 through 26. As a reminder, you can find D&D Raw on all your favorite podcatchers. Follow us on Twitter at rules is written if you have any questions you could email us at dm at dnd raw if you want to hear what our day-to-day shenanigans are like you could join our discord with the link in the description and if you really enjoy what we do it would mean so much if you support us on patreon you could find out more on patreon.com slash dnd raw and now on to the questions hi my name is mike and i play shannon whitecliffe from serviceable plots hi my name is nick and i play Leuven cromdell from rumble squad hi my name is rachel and i play elaine fox from rumble squad Hey everyone, this is Tony, Dungeon Master for D&D Raw, and I just wanted to mention that I was unable to join the rest of the cast for this mailback episode. However, I did want to answer a question by Mosiru. The question was, how excited am I to have the players explore my world of Ostia? Short answer, extremely excited. I have been working on this overall campaign for the better part of, I want to say, like four or five years. Might have actually been longer than that. I ran about a two-year campaign prior to this as a way for me to practice DMing while I was building up this world. I have made so many different things, and I'm constantly tweaking and changing the world as it is. For example, the entire realm of the Rigorum has been helped and enhanced because of the Orenthal campaign and Adam's character, Sildan, who is originally from there. The region existed, and a lot of the ideas I had for that were already in place. However, his Essentias and the accent that he uses helped to kind of develop that area even further. And I asked him questions on his on his character's region and to help develop that even more. It's mainly thanks to like the Orenthal campaign that tweaks have actually occurred. Different NPCs might have gone down different paths thanks to that. Right now, Serviceable Plots is exploring the eastern coast of Nabrasil, where they got to see Amaron, a city established by Thoven Arbergade, the very first place I created for this particular campaign. Now they've been exploring Orenthal and seeing what the effects are in the city 150 years after the events of the original Orenthal campaign, and I love the transition and everything that they get to explore, and as players from the original campaign get to see both what things were like back during this cataclysmic time that I described, And then how they are nowadays, where time has passed, the Empire has had a chance to heal and grow and get stronger. So basically, yes, I could go on for a long time and talk about the Thessun Kingdom with the dwarves and everything I have built there. I could talk about the magical cities of Solana, where I am excited for the parties to get to at some point. Then there's the Nephany and the mystery surrounding them and why their capital city is unreachable, it seems, by any of the other kingdoms, 
Then there's all of the land in between that I'm excited to show the difference between living and being in a more populated area, an empire or a kingdom, and then being out in the wilds and in the untamed lands between the kingdoms and the dangers that lurk there. Also, the potential mysteries that lurk in those areas that are untapped by major civilizations. So overall, yes, very, very excited for the parties to explore the world of Ostia. There is so much I have planned or ideas that I have within the world, and I can't wait for them to interact with them all. Good, the bad, and the weird. But I just want to make sure I answer this question because Ostia is something that I've been working on for a very long time. So I am just so excited to be able to share it with everybody now. Anyways, on to the rest of the mailbag episode. Enjoy. So we had a multi-part question, which we received, I think, before our previous mailbag. And we just weren't emotionally ready to reveal (laughs) all of this yet. Partly because some of the information that will be useful in answering it hadn't been released yet. So the question was, do you bring current political and social issues into your world? This includes gender identities, political ideologies, blurring the lines between reality and fantasy. And is that anachronistic? So it's a multi-part question. Mike, I know you have some thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, I focus mostly on economics and politics when it comes to my games and the current game that we're in. Class disparity is something that's come up, uh, and I'm interested in exploring that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it's something that we sort of had referred to in more recent episodes. It's been very directly called out and addressed for serviceable plots, especially, because I think that's something that resonates with all of us, is something that's important and is a major world-building moment, not just there, but part of our real world. I will say on sort of the gender piece, when Tony was first crafting the world of Ostia, I put in a request like, please no sexism or really like gender prejudice, because I know that's a real world problem. I really don't want to deal with it in a fantasy world. It's not something I want to explore. I feel like I explore enough in like the day to day, you know, world of being a human being on Earth. And he's like, yes, I agree. So we kind of have assumed in our fantasy world where we could do whatever we want, we are all treated equally. And everyone's educated. That was something that threw me off when we started. Oh, yeah, that people are literate. Yeah, no, because my character concept was a Scrivener, someone who writes for people who cannot write. And since everyone knows how to read and write, it's kind of evolved into this, like, professional letter writer for when you want to use words good. Well, I will say out of the group of four people, three of us, our jobs have been for many years writing for people who don't words good in real life. (laughs) So... (laughs) Or or just need help. Sorry, I don't want to shun anyone we're working with who is not a good writer. <laughs> but uh, I think one of the questions about is that anachronistic is kind of an interesting one, because the idea would be that it's not something that parallels like real history or it's not accurate. And the short answer is yes, that's correct. A lot of us are fans of history, but I don't think we want to have a incredibly historically accurate world because of aforementioned problems like, uh, you know, prejudices that we're not wanting to explore. So I talked about this with Tony when we were talking about things like, like you said, like literacy and technology. And he said he was considering it more historically inspired. (laughs) Yeah. Picking and choosing. Well, I don't think that it's entirely fair to say that some of the issues that we've discussed are like anachronistic. 
it, it, the class struggles that we were talking about in Orenthal, as an example, like you were seeing that sort of thing back in Rome between the plebeians and the patricians. So if they were dealing with it back then, it makes sense that it would happen here. I mean, even in a typical fantasy setting, feudalism was a thing. Yeah, I think part of it is just for every person's game, it's the things you want to explore. And I think the most important thing is to have buy-in from your players. Like, I don't think it's wrong to tackle like major problems, even like paralleling real world politics. But at the same time, I think it's nice to have an escape <laughs> from some of the things we deal with day to day. Yeah, but some games, that's definitely something you have to cover in session zero. But some games do just are focused on addressing it, like Monster Hearts, as an example, for dealing with relationships and gender issues, or The Signal Kills Fascists in terms of dealing with rising up against an oppressive like government or something. Yeah, I do think it's funny. My character is extremely pro-government. I know it's it's a surprise. <laughs> I, I've made this her ma- one of her major blind spots, by the way. It's not intentionally because I think she's right. That's just sort of her worldview. And I'm sure that's going to get upset down the road that like, no, the government's not perfect. But overall, like things are better. People aren't being murdered by ghouls. I think that's a major plus. People are educated. We're not experiencing a war right now. These are all good things. The caravans run on time. <laughs> she's not a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> she, I don't know. Some of the things that we've heard from from the Jack Belinda side do imply that they do some shady stuff. Well, somebody has to do the shady stuff so that the caravans can run on time. I mean, so that people can live happy, free lives from oppression. Right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I know, Nick, you were listening to episode 29 of Serviceable Plots, interested in that conversation about, you know, sort of the the disadvantages of the people living in the, the more impoverished parts of the city. Sure. And this is something that we've had kind of as a buildup, a running theme since uh, the Orenthal campaign, just something that's been kind of there in the background. And it's been this slow burn building up toward exploring it. So I think it's also, you know, if, if things are handled thoughtfully, then it's it's something that maybe can be worth exploring. Yeah. I think it's also uh, just, you know, worth kind of uh, exploring it, uh, this topic from the sense of uh, how political is your campaign being more of a spectrum than a binary on off switch. Uh, because, you know, e- even just the act of bringing in some some of our core values, like we, we love having diverse characters and NPCs. Some, some might view that through a political lens, but it's also just something that's natural to us. Yeah, that's a good point. I think you could argue a lot as a political decision, even the fantasy economics or like Mike brought up the literacy rates <laughs> that <laughs> part of it are things that just we want to engage with as players and trying to also have it be cohesive, I think is the hard part where having it all make sense. Like, I know the literacy piece, Tony was also thinking, well, how is this tied to the fact that we live in a world where there's literally magic? Can people literally like teleport to other planes of existence, but not read and write? That seems weird. <laughs> yeah, that seems really bizarre. Serviceable Plots actually explores this really well. I don't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but I believe it's been released recently. Where Essentially, the cost of magic items and magical components also being a barrier. So magic exists, but there's still kind of a paywall to it, for lack of a better term. Pay to play. Yeah, and Nick, I know you and I talked the other day about not exactly a political stance, but examining privilege as sort of a component of a lot of our characters um, and coming at it from different angles. Yeah, Leuven definitely has some privilege to explore in in the sense of he grew up kind of in an elven area as a half-elf. 
So he hasn't really had to deal with prejudice, but then he he's in Gorgorum and a suddenly, you know, a kind of a slur is used by an orc toward him and he'd never experienced that before. And conversely, you know, he probably had some preconceived notions about orcs as will come out in later episodes that are being challenged now. Yeah, yeah, cuz I know uh, Elaine has some uh, strong connections to orcs. Yeah, they're like her best friends. <laughs> She's basically one of them, adopted. They get her. They have they a they, they have a lot of shared ideology. Oh, and there's more of a shared ideology later. <laughs> <laughs> more to come. Yeah. More to come. Well, and I think that's part of it too is because it's a fantasy world with different kingdoms, and I think as this is true for many fantasy worlds, there's no one system or one society or culture that we're examining so part of it's exploring those differences i know sometimes it's uh not so fun from the economic side like i know chris has struggled as auric <laughs> being somewhere which operates on a barter economy and not on a cash basis <laughs> yep uh-huh. oh and also just growing up middle class like leuven hasn't really seen a lot of the orenthal style poverty in certain areas yet but that'll be an interesting uh thing to take in as well i think as he tries to become more worldly in many aspects I can't wait to see Worldly Leuven. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure does, if we'll get there, but we're going to try. Does it involve a hat? Like, what makes Leuven more worldly? <laughs> and watching serviceable plots like talk through those issues, too, is just really fun as a listener. Mike mentioned before uh, that, you know, we do quite a bit of, like, therapy in serviceable <laughs> plots. <laughs> and how do you feel about that? Scrib has to deal with a lot. Like, he's middle class, but he grew up in Veripol, which is kind of like this backcountry touristy like thing and he's familiar with poverty but in a way that like doesn't it's abstract yeah it, it doesn't disparage the people like they're everybody has a hustle in Veripol. <laughs> <laughs> well right and i think uh with the character of orlay who scribs childhood friend crossing over into orenthal and really confronting directly what it's like there that's really confronted scrib directly with like what that experience means and and how could it be addressed because uh scrib likes to solve problems yeah, but I mean, even in the most recently released episode, he faces that choice and he makes a decision. And it's not necessarily the one I thought he would make. It's always fun when our character surprises. Yeah. <laughs> it's happened a few times. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think we'll move on to the next question, which was, what are some of your favorite sources of inspiration? Uh, Mike, I know you wanted to answer on as GMs for story, plot hooks, and NPCs. Podcasts. I listen to a lot of, like, historical podcast design podcasts just interesting things that happen in history everything has a story and every story can be made into a plot hook also the news just like in general not the politics and everything else but like florida man finds ancient burial ground below gas station sort of thing so should we clarify that you're really just looking at Florida man news and no other news sources? <laughs> well, no, weird stuff happens internationally, too. Like the dispute between a company that owns a piece of land and then they find like an archaeological dig site. And then the contention that happens between the two parties there. Like there's people who want to preserve the land, people who want to just move the relics elsewhere versus the people who just want to like create their parking lot. Yeah, and I think we should mention your NPCs. Uh, That should be addressed. I don't know how much we've actually talked about it on the podcast, but like Mike's length of like this list of weirdo NPCs that have come from some strange inspiration is always growing. What was the last one I talked about? The Firefighting Barbarian? I feel like that was a while ago, but that's one that really sticks out where you're like, guys, (laughs) hear me out. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that one was based on a podcast discussing the history of just 
wildfires and like control burning and how changes in policies would lead into the wildfires that you know we have in California now and i was just thinking so is there a way for me to have fire as just a controlled sort of nature thing what does a ranger think about controlled burning i said well rangers would be more controlled so what about a barbarian <laughs> Let it burn. Well, yeah, because barbarians and rangers are kind of parallel in this attuned with nature thing if you're going that route. Mm -hmm. So a fire barbarian just seemed fun, especially since it kind of takes the concept of this roving barbarian horde destroying things and turns it a little bit on its side where, no, 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 they're doing a controlled burn. Yeah. Yeah, this town was in the way, and it's unfortunate that it got burned. In but it's to save the greater. Yeah, it's to save the entirety of the forest of the mountainside. So I would like to point out that Mike sounds very, like, thoughtful and, like, a good player as he's, like, explaining all of this. But he also says, Tony, if you kill Scrib, I'm going to bring in my firefighter <laughs> barbarian. <laughs> I'd also like to note that as as you're talking about this, all I can picture is the Elmo with the fire in the background. Yeah. Like, his little arms <laughs> up in the fire, and the, that's all I picture. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> or that meme with the girl kind of turning away from the burning house with an evil yeah. grin. Like, yes. <laughs> They're not all that well thought out. I think I also have the barbarian ranger whose animal companion is a wolf, and she has ancestral guardian as the barbarian path, and they're just spirit wolves of her past animal companions. So that was pretty cool. I thought you were going to say a duck. A duck? <laughs> like, <laughs> why after a duck? the untitled goose game. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're just two geese. Just Those two would geese. be terrifying. <laughs> Hi, we're Rumble Squad. Hello. <laughs> Forget wolves. Tell us about your geese. Tell us about your pet geese. <laughs> I think I was also working on a Jim Henson bard. Wait, was it Jim Henson? Because you also had your, like, Richard Simmons, like, aerobic bard. The bard monk? The bard monk, who, yeah, <laughs> who taught aerobics classes. And I'm like... College of Glamour and, like... I don't remember which monk. I don't think it really matters. But College of Glamour allows for you to cast command at will for like one minute so you use that Dance. to run a calis Dance. yes <laughs> exactly you run a calisthenics course like all right knees high knees high drop down push up so mike pitches these and like i have an idea for a new player character and i'm like mike these are all npcs none of these are player characters <laughs> and she is absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> so any of them could threaten Tony if something happens to Scriv. Scriv must live for the rest of our sanity. <laughs> or we uh, end up with, with Richard Simmons. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he would fit right in, in the world of Orenthal. <laughs> We're fighting demons and devils and dealing with political struggles. And dance! <laughs> Everyone, have you considered that all of life's problems can be solved with proper diet and exercise? And jazz hands. Creative solutions. You know, that's what D&D is all about. Yeah, also, I realized jazz hands don't carry over audio. We all did them. Yes, you know. <laughs> we did do them. So, Nick, I know you were thinking from the player side, what sort of inspiration do you have for uh, player characters and backstories? So I know the number one thing that comes to mind for me is tropes. And I think Chris has talked about this in, in a previous mailbag as well. Just little tropey things that come up. Tor is a perfect example. Uh, when, when I started building my character for Orenthal, I saw source material that really inspired me. And it was like, oh, I'm just going to bring out the full stereotypical 
detective thing here with a magnifying glass and kind of being rough around the edges. And sometimes just a little nugget like that can really build a core character. And then you build more nuance from from that kernel. But there are other things, too, that come to mind, like um, just characters that you enjoy in different shows and games can also be a spark. Sometimes even just browsing social media, uh, we have a lot of ideas, creative ideas that are generated by different people in our TTRPG community, and they just love to share them. And that can also give some light inspiration to build from. Yeah, just there's a ton of stuff. Yeah, for me, I think tropes are an element, but I like to like invert tropes because I'm like, here's the trope. Here's the obvious thing. I want to do something slightly different with it so I can pretend I'm clever to myself um, and also to keep things interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I do that, too. Like Leuven, yeah. <laughs> Leuven kind of walking this line between I grew up on, in, a, in a farming town, but also I'm a city boy at the same time kind of turns it on its head a little bit or at least kind of merges two together in a way you wouldn't normally see. Yeah, and I think for player characters, too, it's looking at things and going, okay, this I like. It's sort of a, it's like a puzzle almost sometimes, you're, but you're just getting little pieces of put together. Be like, does this make a whole character? Where am I missing something? Uh, you know, where do I need to fill things in? One additional thing I would say is, especially for secrets, having those one-on-one discussions with your DM is a great way to generate ideas and also get some buy-in on things. Not that any of us have any secrets. No, I mean, no. <laughs> we are all 100% straightforward people. My fingers are not crossed under the webcam right now at all. Exactly. Script's pretty straightforward. No, Script's secrets aren't ones that he knows. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Sorry, Scrib, uh, what are you? <laughs> Ouch. Who are you? Why are you? How are you? <laughs> I mean, it's true, though, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. And I like it that way. Mm-hmm. You like having some mystery that's external as well. And that's yes. part of it, too, is even if you know who your character is, I think it's fun to leave some things open-ended so that you can discover that over time or your DM can integrate it with the story. Like, I, I like surprises, too. Mike's a big fan of knives. Knives are very good. So we explain <laughs> the concept of knives, not physical knives. We don't do any actual stabbing. There's no rituals, no blood sacrifices, just to clarify. No, but knives are just hooks that you can give your DM. Usually it's either a place or a person or an item that you have that has personal connection. And then you give those to your DM to stab you with. <laughs> oh. I was waiting for the connection to the word knives, but I, I totally follow now. Yeah. So Jack and Jane Whitecliffe, Scrib's parents, are knives in that Jack has this personality, but we don't necessarily know everything about him. And Tony has used that to adapt Jack into his game. Orlay is another knife that Scriv holds very closely. But after presenting like this is who Orlay is, here you go. Place her wherever you would like. Same thing for Strides and Moments, who shows up later, his uh, mentor. I would say you've done that effectively. Like from that context, yeah, Scriv already has multiple stab wounds and we're only in arc one. <laughs> And that's what I really like, because it means that I, as a player, have buy-in, since I'm giving him all of these hooks, and it means that the DM has a way to keep my character engaged with the plot. I will say, though, I think this is something Mike and I have different from in our playstyle from you and uh, Rachel, Nick. We like our characters to suffer, like... 
we ask for it. We're like, take yes. this character that I love and I hold dear to my heart and give them pain and suffering. Like, give them drama. Do terrible <laughs> things to them. I want to make good choices with this character, but I'm here for the drama. So please just lay it on. I know you guys tend, not that you don't want bad things to happen, but you tend to be a little more positive. We want a party. You want a party? <laughs> I set Leuven up knowing bad things would happen to him. I gave myself that challenge because he's super naive and is bound to be disappointed and traumatized, yeah. and that has happened. But then I actively try and avoid it. So it's kind of like I, I, I set myself on challenge mode, and here we go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. No, I've had Scriv make poor decisions because it was the good character choice rather than being the safe one. There is a thing that happens later on in an episode that hasn't been released that fulfills that need for drama. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like everyone else in the party was very apologetic, like, oh, I'm sorry that this happened to your character. Just to clarify, it's mostly Adam going... Are you okay, Mike? I'm really Aww. sorry about what happened. I'm I'm I'm, wor I'm worried about you. But if you look at the camera, we're both we're both ecstatic. <laughs> like, yes, this yes. is all I wanted. <laughs> Give us the drama. <laughs> Rip my heart out. <laughs> uh, basically, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just want to nice. rumble. <laughs> I just want to rumble and have fun. I rumble with my squad. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's interesting. Everyone has a different approach of what they're looking for with their story. Like, is it more of an adventure? Is it more of... I think ours is somehow to being like a drama slash becoming a political thriller sometimes. It's a building's <laughs> Roman that's slowly building into Les Miserables. No, that's just for Scrib. That's not the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> that's his story, so... That's Scrib's story. Yes, Scrib, the main character. <laughs> of course, obviously. <laughs> no, we already met the main character, but... She'll show up later. Yeah, but say. So I think that kind of addresses where all of our inspiration comes from. <laughs> so we had another question. Do you have any tips and tricks for first-time DMs, especially methods for preparing or methods for running a game itself to make it a little easier? So, Rachel, I think you have some experience with teaching people to run games as first-time DMs. I, I do, in fact. A bit? Just a bit. Uh, and I also have, you know, obviously – the experience teaching kids to run, which is another level of challenge. But one of the, the few of the things we would use is like Five Room Dungeon, which you can find online. You just type in Five Room Dungeon. But what we actually found works really, really well for doing at least short adventures or even one shots is a one sheet uh, encounter, basically. So on the front, you have your who, what, where, when, why, and how about the encounter you know, about the location, the creatures and, and people that the, the party's going to encounter. And then on the back, you have maybe your map, you have a list of your items, and then you kind of write out more details about the individual characters that they're going to come across. So it works really well for setting up like your blocks. If you have your whole outline, you can use the one sheet encounter to then go, okay, well, next session, I want them to do this, and then use that to break down the story into the individual chapters, basically. So you're saying really break it down into chunks, don't try to tackle it all. Like, I need to plan a whole campaign. No, because your players will, in the first session, screw up that whole plot line you have, probably. So <laughs> definitely don't plan a whole campaign. You can have the whole idea of the campaign, and things that you want to happen. But I would not write it out, you know, scene by scene and go, all right, they're going to do this and that because it, it will not happen that way. I'm so sorry. The more players you have and the more kids involved. <laughs> yes. But definitely 
for starting, I would recommend if you you just want to jump in and not do any prep, you can start with just a simple module off of like DM's Guild or you could do Lost Minds of Fandelver, but it is definitely not the best to start You wouldn't with. recommend it as a first, <laughs> as a first no. one based on your experience where you're like, it's a little broken. It's a little broken. There's a lot of gaps to fill. But it, if nothing else, they give you a skeleton to look at and to figure out where you want to fill things in. You mean skeleton as in framework, not that there's an actual skeleton, but are there also act- actual skeletons? Also, Nick's face looked all traumatized for a second, talking about lost minds. I, I know he still has some, like, PTSD. <laughs> Is that right, Nick? Well, my character did, and <laughs> probably I do too, yeah. <laughs> so, I think... Maybe the general tip is take advantage of resources that are available online and don't feel you have to build everything from scratch. At least not the first time. Once you've played a little as a player and then ran a few short one shots or even just co-DM'd or anything like that, which by the way, co-DMing is a great chance to dip your toes in without jumping all the way in, especially not into the deep end like some of us have. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what Um, you're talking about. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah, there's there's definitely a ton of resources. Yeah, uh, and Mike, I know you had some specific uh, resources you wanted to recommend. Yeah, I would recommend reading a book called Return of the Lazy GM, which provides a very good outline in terms of just a basic checklist for things that you might want in your sessions. It describes like building up potential scenes the way that Rachel's describing, just broad strokes and coming up with secrets and clues to help guide the players to the direction that you want. Because we've all been in situations where someone tries to railroad, like you try to go off the path and they say, no, you can't go there. You have to go this way. Rachel's hissing. (laughs) It's not fun. No, But if you provide clues and you use knives, like we mentioned before, to keep your players engaged, then they'll want to follow the breadcrumbs that you're giving. I will kind of give a caveat. I think one of the struggles early on in DMing is finding the level of structure that's comfortable for you and your players between kind of keeping things really responsive and adaptive to what's happening and having like some sort of coherency. So don't feel like you have to have that figured out all at once, because I know my style has completely changed from when I first started, where I was much more structured. I miss it sometimes, but it just wasn't working for the players. <laughs> yeah. I also recommend playing around with Dungeon World just a little bit. Not necessarily for the game itself, but the idea of fronts that they present on the DMing side, which is kind of the structured threat and then steps that the threat follows while the players engage with it. And then... What I've done in adapting for my games is I build a couple of different fronts on the back end, and then as the players move around in the world, they'll engage with these fronts and address them, and then eventually my plot will emerge. Are you saying that's once you get more to the campaign stage from the initial, like, running some sessions and, and just learning how to how to do those initial, like, running the session sort of experiences? Yeah. If if you're concerned about the broad stroke campaign, if you're focusing on just the individual session, note cards are great. Just have a note card for like the face of a location, which is the NPC that the person's going to deal with, and a couple of adjectives that will help describe it. Just a shorthand for you personally to know who this person is. Yeah, Rachel, earlier I think you mentioned spreadsheets, uh, and we also are big fans of tables (laughs) for generating (laughs) things that you need. Random generator tables are really great. And I also would like to add that if you are with a group that is new and they don't know what they're doing, 
but you feel comfortable with it, you can always ask, do you want me to like guide you more heavy handed or do you want more free reign? Because I have played with students who are, they're just unsure about how it works and they sit there awkwardly, quietly. I'm like, guys, do you want me to like push you along more or do you, are you just thinking? And they're like, no, we're clueless. I'm like, okay, (laughs) okay, let me, let me throw some stuff at you then because I tend to think, you know, as I'm playing with adults that, oh, they're just contemplating everything that I've just offered them and trying to make a decision, but they're not interacting with each other. And really, they're just like, unsure of anything that's happening at the moment. So it's okay to railroad players, especially if you've asked them, is it okay if I railroad you a little (laughs) to get you started? I think that's an excellent point that you bring up where it really matters on the group that you're dealing with, you need to get to know these people. One reason why I find one shots with strangers very hard is that I don't know how they react. Mm-hmm. And that requires well more effort in terms of communication, which I don't mind. But if you're just starting out, like get to know your players. It'll take some time, but eventually, yeah, you'll know how to interact with them better. You'll also know how they interact with each other if it's the same group that plays. Mm-hmm. Like for example, you'll know that Adam and I cannot sit next to each other at a table because we <laughs> we just antagonize each other and it just spirals out of control. Yeah, basically like, yeah, do it. Yeah, do, no, I'm going to do it. Do yeah, it. you chaos, do it. Chaos, basically, chaos, yeah. Chaos, it's, chaos. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. chaos. And eventually they're like just trying to prank someone. I'm like, guys, <laughs> there's a mission. <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> we could like change that to look like something else and then push it in front of this other person and watch it just derail. And like, if we didn't have Adam at our table, we would sit around and try to plan everything out in advance. Uh, we, by we, you mean myself and Bethany. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> we like to plan for good outcomes, despite also craving drama. It's attention, okay? <laughs> Here's our twenty-two page document for the next session. Okay. Can- okay. Yeah, I feel called out, Nick. You're not wrong. There is a to-do list. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> the to-do list is very useful. It is. Um, it's also a little weird. I accept that on the player side. Yeah, I'm super structured. I like to to keep track of what's going on, partly because I, I know my little human brain can only hold so much. So I like to document things. We have a to do list, too. It's just a uh, work in progress. <laughs> it's like one page. <laughs> <laughs> That's very reasonable. Also, ours is like, here's the things we have done so we can look upon them and, you know, feel proud of ourselves. Really? Because I use that in terms of who's this guy again? Oh, right. Yeah, there's a lot of NPCs. So I guess any other thoughts on methods for prepping or running a game for first-time DMs? Or do we want to move on to the next question? Try it. Just just try it. Just just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it is, is our <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the next question was, how do you keep yourselves focused when you're planning your session and or campaign? This question was a little general, and I think it could be read a couple of ways. Uh, one might be, uh, how do you literally focus on doing the thing? And the other might be, how do you just make sure it's sort of like actually a focus session or campaign? For me, it's like opening a Google Doc and just like dumping information and ideas in there and grabbing links to things I think are interesting or relevant or I want to reference. And then eventually coming back to that and going, but what does this look like actually (laughs) as a session or a campaign? Bulleting out some lists, doing that geeky thing I do where eventually if I'm doing a session, I want to make an agenda. Rachel laughs, but... It works for you. It works for me. So I think putting things down, either writing them in a notebook, which is what Tony does, or putting it in a Google Doc and taking it out of your head, 
is for me a really important step. Otherwise, I know I could just spin my wheels all the time just thinking about a thousand ideas. I also do struggle with rejecting ideas because I'll have some of them like, oh, that's a great idea. Does it fit with what I'm doing? Yeah, I can make it work. <laughs> I can make it work. I'll just reskin this and reskin yeah. that and it works. <laughs> yeah, hence my story is bonkers now in my four-year campaign <laughs> because I I just don't like to say no to an idea I think will be fun. I, I've gotten better at it, but I'm now reaping the uh, – well, I was going to say rewards, but also all of the negative consequences of choices I made years ago. Don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Rachel, what are what are some of your thoughts? Definitely writing everything down. Bethany's much more structured than I am. I, I'm much more high level. So I will think of, okay, this next session, I want them to go to X place. That's about all I plan usually. I throw in some you know, bullet marks of who are they going to meet? What are they going to like? What are their goals maybe going to be? What twists am I going to maybe throw in if it presents like a good opportunity? So like, when I'm planning the session, I usually plan like very, very high level, just because I like to let them do their own things and make their own chaos and trouble. Well, I don't think it has to be one or the other, honestly. Like I know I do a lot of prep, but I also I like I do things like I know there's going to be this particular encounter, which will have these checks, and I prep all of my DCs ahead of time, so I don't have to come up with them on the fly. Granted, I still have to come up with things on the fly sometimes. That happens. I kind of look at it more as from a scenes or events perspective, like these are the things that will occur, regardless of whether the players are interacting the way I expect or not, these external world events will happen. Within those, chaos always happens. I'm always like sitting there, like, you know, face in my palm going, what are they doing? <laughs> we get to this point where they're arguing about carts. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think we've referenced <laughs> that before in Rules is Written, where there was this whole thing. It was much earlier in my DMing where they were going to another town and they wanted to hire a cart. Okay. And I was like, okay, yeah, here's the cost for carts. And they're like, all right, but there's so many of us. Who's riding in the cart? Actually, Tony's character can pull the cart. We don't need to have an animal. What does it cost for just a cart? Should we buy the cart rather than rent the cart? Um, what gear should we put on the cart? The issue was that Tony couldn't ride in the cart with all of us because of the weight issue. Because the weight. So they were mapping out the weight. None of this came from me. Like, this was all, like, player stuff. And they're talking about the cart. And they're like, oh, but also, we're not as alert if maybe we're driving the cart. Who's proficient in land vehicles? Like, and only Tony's character. <laughs> and I'm like, what? what is happening? And eventually gets to the point where, like, 20 minutes in, I'm like, guys... I have to be honest, just tell me yes or no on the cart. We'll take some money out. It's not going to matter because nothing happens on this journey. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just can't. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I've heard the word cart a thousand times. The word is now meaningless to me. <laughs> You're preempting us a lot on stuff like that now to avoid to cut some of that out. Like you will arrive safely. You will not be ambushed along the way. Your cart is sufficient. Your marching order is sufficient. Yeah, well, I don't want you to feel like you're investing a lot of time in decisions that just aren't going to be relevant based on what's happening in the world. I think there's some amount of, I want to give you guys freedom, but I also don't want you to feel like we went through all that trouble for nothing. And me being like, mm -hmm. yeah, I sat by and watched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I watched. <laughs> I watched. I suffered. You suffered. I'm just not a big fan of what I would call churn, where it's just this sort of like discussion about stuff that is not going to matter. So I'll just try to preempt and ask like, 
hey, are you going to hire a cart for these reasons? Uh, That's something I've just learned for this particular group because there's so many of you and you have a lot of ideas. So it's better to say, here's the ideas for things that are important and the things that are not important. (laughs) And that's not what I would do for every group, but it's what I do for my particular group of players. In a way, I think that's helped prep us for podcasting too. So I'm appreciative of it. Oh, good. Yeah. And I don't want to be stifling creativity. The cart discussion was not creative. Well, it was. It just wasn't productive. (laughs) And I'm still haunted by it. It was so unnecessary. I think that's the point where you all were like disagreeing very strongly about it. Like there were like two sides of like this pro anti cart. Who's pulling the cart? Who's driving the cart? There were so many things. I might have just been like, I'm fine with whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Nick is always like, peacekeeper, guys. So when it comes to planning my session, I I allow for some of that, but I also try to anticipate some of those things and make a note like, give them a heads up not to worry about this thing. Like, for a while, it was my major enemy, doors. What? I hate doors. (laughs) Does it open inwards? Does it open outwards? Like, is it locked? Is it metal? Is it wood? Is it framed? Does it have iron bands? Can we pick it? Can we kick it in? She's like, oh my. Yeah, so I've learned, okay, guys, this door, doesn't matter. It's not an important door. We're just going to move on. I know. I'm- Is it a pocket door? Because otherwise, literally, there'd be a dungeon where you know you're going to encounter like 10 doors. And each door was like a 10-minute conversation about that door. Yep. That would actually be the most diabolical dungeon if you made a dungeon where the only enemies are doors. <laughs> it's just doors. I, I think Every that would TPK different. us. <laughs> yeah, we'd all in like- just fall into infighting and kill each other at that point. <laughs> yeah, despite the fact I don't think anything really sinister has happened with doors. No door mimics? Just no. one of those standard adventuring tropes, right? That we brought to the table ourselves and <laughs> yeah. created our own villain. And we've talked before about the power of player intuition, which it doesn't matter if it's right or not. It's just a force that overwhelms you in the moment. I feel this also as a player where I'm like, I know this is true. And then later I'm like, that was so dumb. Why did I think that? (laughs) It made sense at the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You you have also experienced this phenomena. (laughs) In this campaign, Scriv cutting off that body's arms for absolutely no reason. (laughs) Ah, yes. You're like, "Uh, guys... Is this pointless? <laughs> yep. Should I go fight? Yeah, yeah. I think you should. <laughs> We're that facing was... off against an, a, a giant robot powered by undead magic, <laughs> and there are dead bodies. What am I supposed to expect? You're like, gotta go get there, chop their arms off. <laughs> gotta their... take care of the ads before they become a thing. Rumble Squad did something similar going through uh, Neverhelm that second time with all the skeletons. And how how can we get rid of the bodies and stop them from attacking us, but without desecrating? Yeah, we wanted to be respectful. I'll say, yeah, Tony is much more tolerant on the DM side of allowing that stuff to go on for a bit and just to wait for the players to realize. Whereas I've learned, I'm just like, guys, (laughs) shut it down. Shut it down. (laughs) It's not because it's, I feel bad for you. I feel bad for myself. I can't, I just can't do this. (laughs) I'm tired. It's nice that you guys want to try this. Don't. <laughs> By the way, this isn't every camp, you know, every session of the campaign. It's just sometimes that it's those triggers like doors, inciting NPCs. We've had a lot of talks about like, <laughs> we'd like to spam our insight lie detector. Boom. They lie in. They got to murder us. Perception too, right? Like just a- avoiding danger whenever possible. I am looking for hostility at all times. <laughs> so... Yeah, and that you learn as you go. Uh, so I just make notes of like things to watch for. <laughs> yeah, any other thoughts on uh planning 
Oh, yeah. I realize we talked mostly about sessions. For campaigns, I would say I don't. I don't plan the campaign. I read Prince of the Apocalypse. It's not a great campaign story. It doesn't have a satisfying ending. I sort of have bapped out an ending a few times. I think we're on like the 10th version because I knew it would change based on what they've done. We're actually going to get to it at some point. So I just kind of like to keep it open, you know, see see where the journey takes us. The journey's taking us some weird places. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> so we are going on to our most specific question, which is from uh, one of our patrons. So the question is, my players from the Dragon Heist campaign have cracked the Vault of Dragons and have some money to go magic item shopping. Instead of just creating a magic store, I would like to create a magic auction. You have any suggestions? And I was like, this is a Mike question. <laughs> yes. So there are two ways you can take this question. Because although it is a very specific question, it is also open to interpretation. On the one hand, this patron is asking, come up with a magic item. To which my response is something that gives them an additional movement mode, whether it's boots that allow for them to burrow through stone or a pair of daggers that like you throw one and then you can teleport to the paired dagger or like, what is it? The Cape of Montbank? Montbank. Yeah. The one that you go and pop up in a different spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or even the or even the cape that turns you into a bat. Like... I love additional movement modes because it just opens up a map more so than any other form of magic item that you can get. Also, there's that shovel that you can like put it into dirt and it moves a five foot cube of dirt so you can create instant pit traps. Oh, I thought you were going to say so you could really get into trench warfare in a big way. Yes. <laughs> it depends on your campaign. I could totally see the Orenthal campaign going that way. I need we need that actually literally in the trenches. <laughs> Give Gertis an update. That's all I'm saying, Tony. For reminder, Gertis is Scriv Shovel, uh, who has a persona. <laughs> Loki. <laughs> Gertis is also a knife. Anyway, the other way to take this question is how can I create a magic auction? To which I say, not just a magic auction. I'm thinking Casino Royale, invitation only, black magic market. It provides you a new location, uh, new faces for the players to interact with, NPCs, factions, plot hooks, and the fact that it is a magical market that isn't tied to any sort of like legal entity means you can throw whatever you want in there and not require much justification. And Dragon Heist is in Waterdeep, right? So you could set it in like the Undermountain or something like that if you want to tie it to the world. There's a lot of freedom there to do whatever you like. So... Yeah, I know Mike and I are big fans of drama, so we're always asking for things like, when do we get a ball? A masked ball. Yes! <laughs> so this is along those lines of bougie auction of illicit magic items. <laughs> Especially if, if you're hired by an NPC who, like, something precious to them was stolen and they know it's going to be sold at this auction, like it's a family heirloom. And so you're hired by this noble who gets you the invitation and you need to go and, you know... Acquire said item as others. <laughs> yes, you have to rub shoulders with these shady people to track down which auction it is, when it's going on sale, maybe make a couple of deals to try and find who wants to buy this item. Yeah, can we also point out this gives you the option to do one of our other all-time favorite scenes, which we do regularly, which is- Heist. <laughs> oh, no, not heist yet. Oh, darn. Shopping for fancy clothes. <laughs> yes. 
I do love shopping for fancy clothes. <laughs> we lost that part in the Orenthal campaign where we needed to dress up for the meeting with uh, General Walsingham, where we had a 20-minute shopping trip. <laughs> That's because it was fun for us. It wasn't fun to listen to. <laughs> I'm yes. actually also just imagining like a magical alternative to the paddles in the actual auction scene. Like instead of physical paddles, maybe everyone has a wand of prestidigitation or something. Shoots up a little like magic number. <laughs> Mage hand. <laughs> No, you could you could add a bit more intrigue where it's like someone hands dancing lights and they had someone else bid when they didn't mean to bid. Oh. Mm -hmm. You can do all these sort of things with the black magic market. So hopefully that's what this question was asking. If it's for a list of magic items, I think often the most fun magic items, yes, it's great to have really strong mechanical Mechanically beneficial items, like it's good to have those on there. Those are pretty easy to find. You'll know them because your players, if they've looked at the DMG, will say, I want these things. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to listen to that a little bit. But I think the best items in the campaign are the trivial, verging on pointless <laughs> items that give you what I guess could only be described as the cool factor. <laughs> cloak of billowing. <laughs> yeah, Rachel's got her all-time favorite, the cloak of billowing. Because what does it do, Rachel? It billows majestically. <laughs> That's all it does. <laughs> it has no mechanical benefits, but man, you look amazing in it. Like, that's an entrance into every room you enter for the rest of the campaign. Belinda's Cloak of Many Fashions has come in handy a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And some of that, it's things, but we've turned it into a mechanical thing. Things like a hat of disguise uh, are also not terribly powerful if you're worried about overpowering, which I think at the end of Dragon Heist, don't you get like 50,000 gold? It's like an absurd quantity of money. But at the same time, that's also like the cost of one legendary magic item because yeah. magic economy is broken. <laughs> Get an immovable rod. If you're looking for an item, just give them two Im immovable rods and they will always have a ladder. Or something creative to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Nick, do you have any magic items that stand out to you that you are you would want to bid on as a player character in an auction? Ooh, magical items to bid on. Also, Nick, I saw you making a face about the immovable rod. The reason I'm saying that is our idea in one of the campaigns was to have one of the smaller characters jump inside the dragon, like be eaten by the dragon, and then click the immovable rod so it wouldn't be able to fly. So at least that didn't puncture through the stomach. Or it wasn't okay. a good idea. It was just <laughs> an idea. <laughs> You're like, let me clarify. <laughs> there are a lot of ways that could have ended. <laughs> okay. Magical items that would be fun at an auction. Something just homebrewed off the wall. Just just something something unique. Yeah, I think in my campaign, one of the items that I just like wrote up that I thought would be interesting and you guys became obsessed with getting was what we were calling the mechanicals, <laughs> oh. which were mechanical manacles where basically if you like slap the bot towards someone, they, it had a DC to mechanically just attach to their wrist and it was a non-magical item that just made you be Batman. Here's one, something that's really low priced, but you find out it has an almost pointless curse to it when you attune. Oh, <laughs> suddenly you really have a voracious appetite for cheese. <laughs> Every time you enter a room, you stub your toe. Oh, I've never done cursed items because the players outnumber me and one of them lives with me. <laughs> That's why I'm specifying an almost pointless curse. Don't make it something brutal. The players will hate you. Yeah. So on to one of our final questions, which we're just going to have Mike and Nick weigh in this time. Besides D&D, &D, what are some of your favorite tabletop role-playing games? I have a lot. <laughs> Let's do- Top two. <laughs> Top two, okay. 
Top two we can do. Ryutama right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's a very it has very cute art and it covers a part of tabletop gaming that I don't get an opportunity to play a lot with, which is travel and just discovery, since it focuses on going from one town to another and interacting with the world in that way. And fate. You love fate. Fate <laughs> is just really good in terms of the concepts that it hammers in with the fractal, with aspects, with narrative truth. And I found that running with fate improved me as a DM. It sounds so dramatic out of context when you don't know that you're talking about a system. I was running with fate and it really has changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's drama. (laughs) Yeah. So Nick, I know you got to experience more games at Gen Con. What are the two standouts you would say? Two come to mind. uh, And Rachel and I both got to play both of these together. There was Call of Cthulhu which has an interesting insanity mechanic to it where I may have bit someone's ear off. So that, that that led to a fun moment. I got shot for it. So, you know. To clarify, this was your player character, not you, Nick. I mean... Yes, correct. <laughs> I am not I am not broadcasting from a prison cell currently. There's no padding around me. This is just a room. And the other was Dread, which I'd talked about really wanting to try before. So I'm glad I finally got to try it which is Jenga with role-playing, essentially. And it adds a lot of tension because there's that physical act of skill and also the almost finality that at some point that tower is going to fall. I mean, it can only get so high, right? Uh-huh. I've seen people manage to get through a game of Dread without that happening, but it's rare. It's not likely. And even if you all survive, you might all still die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you make the wrong choices. <laughs> not saying we did at all. Nope. <laughs> And yeah, I, while I was there at Gen Con, I picked up the rule books for both Fate and for uh, Dread. So I'm looking forward to reading through those and trying out something new. Yeah. And Rachel and I will hold our gushing about some systems for next time. So we'll get those in there. I know. But I think on to our final question, which was, who are your favorite NPCs? I think we're going to restrict this to NPCs currently in the Ostia campaign. So either Serviceable Plots or Rumble Squad. If anyone's ready, feel free to I'm go. I'm ready. Rachel's ready. All right, Rachel, who is your favorite NPC? The boulder. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the jokes about him being the rock or? (laughs) Well, the jokes are great. He's like a really chill dude. He just, he's like a pretty all around good guy. I'm like, yeah, I like him. I like him. I like his area. It's very zen and nice. And, you know, he's got good food. You're like, he's got everything going for him. He's got a cool vibe. He's got a cool place. He's a good cook. He's got little earth elementals that like pop out and do things for him <laughs> and help him. Like, it's cool. It's I'm a fan. He's connected to the plate of elemental earth. Like, that's pretty nifty. That's pretty nifty. Yep. He's nice and grounded. <laughs> oh. Oh. We need Ouch. at least one bad pun for every mailbag, okay? We don't have Chris, so Rachel yeah. is standing up for Chris. <laughs> <laughs> to give us a bad pun or good pun. Nick, do you have one in mind yet? Yeah, uh, I'll name one on the Rumble Squad side and one on the Serviceable Plot side, if that's... I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. I'll allow it. Rumble Squad would be Salazar. She's just a very interesting shopkeeper. So- someone immediately at the start of the campaign for Luvin to aspire to be as good as in terms of making quality magical items and finding ingredients. Mm-hmm. Someone who is low-key, a little judgy sometimes, and it's kind of fun. <laughs> a little bit. I'm here for it. <laughs> and also loves puns. Uh, yes, this will do nicely. 
serviceable plot side, I think I've mentioned this in my QA work, uh, Nermoa, total cinnamon roll, all for it. Oh, yeah. Well, so originally, I would write these long character descriptions, and we found it was easier if I just gave him a shorthand. And I think I pitched it as Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec as Abjuration Instructor. And Tony's like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> I can play this character. <laughs> you know, she's a little intrusive, but she's helpful. She's she's like really passionate about just making sure people have successful lives, but she's also kind of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know you connected with her right away just because she was so positive. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my heart. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, she and Lupin would get along great. <laughs> it would. <laughs> it was so much to talk about. So, uh, Mike, are you ready? It's kind of a tie between Zolas and Kenneth Archen. Zolas because he's been through a lot with us. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, he's maintained a pretty, like, neutral attitude <laughs> in the face of terrible things. We drive him to drink sometimes, but, like, he's been good. And I'm glad to see that he's still interacting with us even when he doesn't have to. so you really like him just because he's loyal (laughs) i mean he's also weighed in on stuff with a different perspective especially for scriv who was going through a period of uncertainty and zolas just weighed in on that it gave my character a different perspective i like kanathar because dude is super shady (laughs) but at the same time we can see points where in the most recent episode that got released He couldn't hold up the mask entirely because we were pushing him to his limit. (laughs) Yeah, because Kanathar and Belinda are like oil and water. He's like, hey, let me be like sassy and throw you off balance. And she's like, I don't have time for that. (laughs) Yes, I enjoy that interplay very much. Also, one of the reasons why I like Zolas, because he and Belinda get along very well, too, from the interludes we've seen. Surprisingly, I don't know how that happened, because personality wise, they're pretty different. But... I ship it. You ship it. (laughs) Loki, you're like, I'm here for the ships. Okay. So uh, (laughs) there's a lot of characters I like. I know Tony's favorite is probably Biagosto. I'm just throwing that out there. His favorite Uh, one to play. Out of all... Yeah, I guess like I chose uh, the wrong character. I did. (laughs) Even if you hate her, you gotta love to hate her. (laughs) She's just a nice old lady. Yeah. I cringed at the mention. She and my characters do not mix. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, but I know she's Tony's favorite to play because she's layered. She's sinister, yet also sweet. Like, it's just, he just has a ball role playing as her. Scriv is all aboard the Biagosto train. (laughs) Become our new quest giver. Let's go. And Belinda's like, no, no, do not trust her. (laughs) But for me, my favorite character is Jack Whitecliffe. That's my favorite character. Ah. Partly because uh, I gave Tony the pitch for his personality, which Mike agreed with, and also because I know we just have like a sense for how shady he is, and we're not going to find out probably for a long time, like all the stuff he's done. But I like that he's just, he's kind of a, a character of contradictions, and it's interesting. Also, like, he interacts well with my character, so I've got a little bit of a bias there where I was like, yeah, they have like a good rapport. This is this is solid. But also, I'm kind of worried he's going to end up murdering one of us at some point. <laughs> and as I mentioned before, I'm here for the drama. <laughs> and it will be Scriv on top of a building in the rain with a gun. 
Yeah, so uh, I feel like there's a, a high probability of a future betrayal, which is exciting. Something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, currently I'd say Jack, but there's so many other characters. I also like all the ones you guys mentioned for various different reasons. And it's always fun to see the different NPCs Tony brings in who are unexpected and different. I, okay, I don't like Canathar, though. Canathar is a pain. <laughs> <laughs> So that's all of our questions for today. We'll be doing these in the future. I think we're planning to do them every 10 episodes of each campaign that are released or so. If you want to, stay tuned for the recap of all the episodes of Rumble Squad Serviceable Plots that haven't been recapped so far. And thank you so much for joining us and submitting your questions. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. See ya. First, here are episodes 21 through 30 of Serviceable Plots. Previously, the party met up with Canathar and finally delivered Zolus as promised completing their job, while Scriv and Akiva prepared for their 2v2 competition and Akiva searched for props for his performance, Valen competes in his wrestling competition and successfully wins. Valen then decides to return to his meditations as Scriv, Akiva, and Belinda head over to the Temple of Arleos. Last time, Scriv and Akiva competed in the 2v2 competition and won first place. Then, while Valen was conversing with his old friend Armand, Belinda took Scriv and Akiva to meet up with a sketchy artificer contact of hers that may have some information on the amulet from the ruins of Silverkeep. The artificer, Zalvador, promised to acquire useful information. However, the party would have to collect the schematics for a bracelet that was said to be in development by some artificer working for one of the noble families of Orenthal. After agreeing to terms, the party then prepared to head to the Cataclysm Tournament. Scriv competed in the Cataclysm competition, but wound up losing to Belinda's father, Roland, in the semi-final match. Meanwhile, Valen competed in the 1v1 competition, making it all the way to the finals before being knocked unconscious by an armored figure named Mavic Thule, who claimed to follow the chaotic evil deity Archon. Finally, the party settled in to have dinner with Belinda's mother, General Walsingham, before Belinda asked to have a private conversation with her mother at the end of the dinner. Belinda and her mother spoke quietly concerning various threats to the Vremer Empire before retiring for the evening. The party then gathered back together the next day, as they shared their recent experiences and concerns over the tasks that lay before them. Valen mentioned his previous connection to the Press Gang, as well as his recent encounter with Mavic Thule, as the party made plans on what to do for the next few days, as they waited to hear back about their next job. While Valen meditated and Akiva practiced for his performance, Belinda and Scriv began research on various topics of interest to them, only to discover several books that were missing from the Erudite Sanctuary. Later, Akiva learned more about why his magic may be restricted in Orenthal, while Scriv used the Nabrasil network to varying degrees of success, making flyers for Akiva's performance, though failing to learn more about the artificer Isaac. After the second evening of research, Belinda met with a mysterious gnome, who used to work with her as he let slip a few details of Belinda's past, while promising to make it seem like the tiefling fanatic of the Whispered Ones, Faithfulness, was still out and moving about in the world. Akiva finally put on his performance in the Ankalab Heights district, just as an old friend of Scriv's came to see him, and asked to meet up the next day. Meanwhile, the party traveled back to Belinda's to prepare to celebrate the performance when they ran into Canathar, who requested the amulet of Tenebris. After refusing to give it to Canathar, the half-dwarf brought them to his employer, the royal cleric Darvin Nathandam. Darvin and Zolus explained the plan to use the amulet to kill Tenebris and stop the rise of undead that has been occurring to the south of the Vremer Empire. After finishing the meeting with the royal cleric, the party said about meeting up with a few other people around the city. Scriv played a game of Cataclysm against Canathar, while Akiva met up with Nermoa in order to figure out a way to contact his friend from back home. 
Afterwards, the party went to the low hills where Scriv got to reunite with his old friend Orlay and learned that she was continuing to pursue her art, though Belinda discovered that she was clearly being overpaid for her work. The party then began to make preparations for Valen's ceremony to become a paladin of Eshenai. After Valen's ceremony took an unexpected twist with a vision quest for the ASMR, the party gathered to discuss what would happen next as the group parted ways. After buying a few supplies for the journey ahead, Belinda and Scriv mailed off the party's letters to several friends and contacts, while Akiva spoke with Nermoa about crafting a sending scroll for him to use. Eventually, the party regrouped and traveled to meet with Orlay again, who told Scriv of her involvement with the Shadow Wolves and her hope to make serious change in Orenthal. Scriv decided not to help Orlay right now, but meanwhile, Belinda ransacked the halfling's mind and learned that Orlay might be involved in something much worse than the Shadow Wolves. After asking Canathar to look into what Orlay was up to, the party traveled to Oakheart. They learned the artificer that they were looking for was indeed in town. However, Scriv and Akiva nearly got thrown in jail for sparring in the town without a permit. Belinda made sure they were not imprisoned, so that they could continue on their quest. As Akiva and Scriv sparred legally now, Scriv tried to use the Kopesh, only to have Umbra lash out at him for some unknown reason. Now truly frightened of the patron, the party decided to stop sparring and go confront the artificer they were looking for. After a brief confrontation with the artificer Imradel, who had attempted to capture them, the party found the prototypes they were looking for. They searched the workroom and interrogated Imradel before leaving her with the authorities of the town. The party then continued the journey towards Mandeville, where they had some intense conversations. Belinda was questioned on her identification papers that seemed to give her more access than any normal person within the Empire. Akiva explained his people's feelings on constructs and the perversion of the cycle of life and death. And Scriv learned that his encounter with Umbra was due to the fact that the shadowy patron sensed something in Scriv that implied more than a simple human heritage. With these thoughts on their minds, they traveled on to the small town of Mandeville. And now, here are episodes 21 through 26 of Rumble Squad. Last time, the party encountered a triceratops that was running from a group of orc hunters. The party allowed the dino to escape and successfully hid from the hunting party before continuing their journey to Neverhelm. They met up with the Shadar Kai woman, and were granted permission to re-enter the lands of the Lady of Spirits. While Leuven, Oric, and Nyssa spoke with the Shadar Kai woman, Elaine focused on trying to converse with the Lady of Spirits. The party learned that the Shadar Kai woman was named Talori, and was here not only to see a death, but hoped to find an old friend named Akiva. Meanwhile, Elaine learned that the Lady of Spirits would not help the party particularly, but she would allow them to stay on her lands. She also learned that the Lady had no love for Bai, and did not fear the old fay. The party then regrouped to discuss what they had learned. Nyssa was called away from the Rigorum in order to help an old friend back in Orenthal, while the rest of the party began their exploration of the ruins of Neverhelm. They learned that much of the magic in the ruins seemed to be degraded and encountered some rust monsters that were very hungry for Oryx's armor. After defeating the beasts, the party pressed on to the throne room, where they heard creepy whispers coming from the throne. After lighting a brazier, the whispers intensified, but the party lit the second brazier and found themselves confronted by a strange spectral creature before it came at them. Meanwhile, Nissa and Eren used a small magic crystal to suddenly teleport out of the Rigorum in their journey towards Orenthal. Nissa and Eren discussed what they had gone through and their future plans as they began their journey to Orenthal. Meanwhile, Auric, Leuven, and Elaine 
fought off a spectral creature before continuing their exploration of the ruins of Neverhelm. They eventually came across a group of skeletons, and after defeating them, they met a turtle named Yopig, a darrow named Inca, and a half-drow named Yazgos, who were exploring the ruins as well. The party decided to travel with this trio as they pressed on, where they learned the three called themselves the Pummel Patrol. The party continued through the ruins of Neverhelm, as they began to get to know their new traveling companions, the Pummel Patrol. After discussing what to do about potential undead, and avoiding them as much as possible, the group eventually returned to the Vault of Neverhelm, finding a javelin of lightning along the way, and preparing to face whatever lay ahead of them. The party ventured deeper into the ruins of Neverhelm, and once again found Rydot waiting for them in the vault. With their allies, Demean and the Pummel Patrol, the group battled the Spellweaver and his Gru allies. Thanks to a javelin of lightning, a lantern of revealing, and some holy hammers, Rydot eventually fell before Rumble Squad. Meanwhile, Nissa and Eren had been making the five-day trip to Orenthal in order to learn what new job awaited them. Rumble Squad continued to learn what they could about their companions, the Pummel Patrol, and the scrying crystal that was the original reason for their journey out here. Meanwhile, Nissa was spending some time in Orenthal as she went to report in to the Shadow Wolves on what happened in the Rigorum. While speaking with her friend and contact Lyle, she learned of a new job, to go to the town of Mandeville and discover who was the mole in the Shadow Wolves.